This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of the Mind Sculptors podcast. I am your host, Callahan, and today we will be discussing rogue decks in CEDH. Today, to help me dive deeper into this topic, is CEDH community member and rogue deck builder themselves, Wireboy. Before we dive deeper into that, however, I do want to take a moment to thank our patrons for all the support that they give. Your support goes towards continuing the show here. So if you want to join the Sculpty family and continue to help produce this show effectively, head on over to patreon.com forward slash the mind sculptors and you can find out more information there. It's time to check in on our Apple podcast ratings. And this week we have one new rating. And that is from Narples420. Love the show. Five stars. Thanks to the Mono White Guys segments, I can now hold my own in my playgroup playing stacks. Now the only problem is they all hate me now. So it's a win-win, really. Keep up all the good stuff. And Lavinia is pretty cool. Glad we can help you out. And I agree. I also think Lavinia is pretty cool. But with all that said, let's jump into my conversation with Choirboy. First of all, uh, got to pour one out for the homies. Uh, Rip Paradox Engine. Uh <laughs> Any any anytime I think about Paradox Engine or Captain Sase, I I always am just immediately like, yeah, rest in peace. Uh yep. May we we hope you return one day. Um There was a time where uh whenever you'd be talking on your podcast episodes and you always talk about Captain Sis and you're like, I don't think it's that good because it doesn't have Paradox Engine and the deck doesn't play rule of law and so on and so forth. Um I'd like start messaging other content uh, creator friends of mine and be like, yo, does Callahan just like have something against me? He keeps saying my deck no. is bad. <laughs> no, it's it's so okay. the The context is, I if it if it makes you feel better, I also think <laughs> Lavinia is bad. Um, <laughs> but here I am. Uh, no, it, it's. It's actually I, I do think like Captain Sisse has really you, some of the innovations you guys have come up with recently, uh, like over the past year or two, have been really interesting. And that's part of why I really was excited to talk to you is uh, you have definitely found a way to make the loss of Paradox Engine. It, it still hurts, right? Like, obviously, yeah. that is a huge minus, but you have been able to minimize the impact of that loss. I feel like, and uh, I think that is a exceptionally impressive thing to be able to do 
in this day and age, especially in colors that are rough. Um, and, and I have seen it in action. I played against you at chaos, but so today we're actually going to be talking a little bit about, I don't know how to describe this so much as are, are decks actually dead or have people just lost interest in them? Um, because we've seen a lot of, albeit probably older strategies, some more, you know, I don't know that I would say fringe, uh, but like, you know, sick, sick robots been playing a lot of sacred hermit recently and it's been performing really well. And, you know, it's, it's basically just soul pie with sacred guide in the deck. Uh, yeah it's just it's in thrasios it's just literally better soul pie it's tassiger but better sorry sinestra um (laughs) and uh (laughs) but so he did that but outside of that we've seen like you know we've seen arkham get some toxic top 16s you've top forward we've seen animar top 16 we see brago top 16 uh we've seen Urza, you know, like Urza Polyceptor, right? Like, which we thought people didn't play that version anymore. Uh, go to top four at Punt City. We saw Chain Veil to Fairy win at uh, the Cash Cards Unlimited event in Los Angeles, yep. uh, which is that is a deck list that we could spend an entire episode talking about. That is a it was a wild deck list. He made <laughs> that guy made some choices. Um, yep. And I don't, and one thing I will say before we get too deep into it is I do think the cash cards unlimited event is kind of an outlier Mm -hmm. because of the, the structure of the tournament, the price set, all that stuff. Yeah. Um, I think that kind of changed the dynamic there a lot. But I mean, hell, look at Punt City, right? Al was in the top four. Winota was in made the, to the final table. Uh, as you said, Urza, or as you put in our notes, Urza made it to the top four. Uh, and, you know, not not to discredit anybody, but we have seen a lot of this recently. The exception being Chaos 4, where the time the rounds were shorter mm-hmm. and there were no turns so it automatically skewed towards the faster decks automatically yep. those decks were automatically in a better position so those results are, are already going to be skewed one way uh and then all these different things so so give me what is your take on all of this information of are we just writing stuff off or is the meta is just a lot more open than we like to think it is? I think it's a little bit of both. Um, I think there's definitely like a lot of people that write off certain deck archetypes or strategies just because they don't see it very often. Mm-hmm. Um, like we don't see chain build to fairy all that often, but chain build to fairy is improved by things like displacer kitten and Holebreaker horror. And Jeweled Lotus, especially. (laughs) Um, All of these tools that other decks are getting, uh, these decks get as well. So even though they may not be as popular 
for people to play. They are improving little by little. And I also think the other part of it is that a lot of these players that are doing really well in these events, like the Urza player who played Urza Powered Scepter um, in Punt City and the Teferi player who won the Black Lotus, both of them are specialists of a single deck. They play that one deck and almost exclusively that one deck. Mm-hmm. So I yeah. think it's a little bit of the decks themselves are improving and the pilots themselves are very, very focused on making that work and understanding how they should play in every single pod, how uh, they should progress their own game plan, what's their best strategy. So let me, so man, this is interesting. I had an interesting conversation about exactly that um, Mm -hmm. with uh, Ian, I think like two weeks ago now. And it's effectively this idea that you know, you go in with a rogue deck to a tournament, right? You go in there with something, something that's fringe, something people don't know very well. And if you know it very well, you automatically have the advantage because they don't know what your deck does, or they might have some idea, but they don't know exactly what to worry about, what cards to deal with versus the person who is a specialist on that, that has been playing it forever, knows the deck inside and out. Uh, is playing this rogue deck, you better believe they know exactly what they need against Blue Farm or Najila or Kenrith or whatever, or Kark and Sakashima or whatever deck they're coming up against, right? And I think you have some experience about this because you've been playing uh, Captain Sisse for quite some time. Indeed, I have been. Uh, (laughs) I actually got into playing uh, Paradox Sisse in the summer of 2019, about a month before the Paradox Engine. Oh, man. And that was that was my first wow. foray into CEDH because Captain Sisse is the first magic card I ever bought. Okay. So she has a very special place in my heart. But uh, after getting banned from casual tables because she leads to very repetitive play patterns of I'm going to tap her, I'm going to find this uh, Reki, the history of Kamigawa, play him, I'm gonna now going to play this Linvala and this Elishnorn and so on, so f- and now I'm going to play this Avacyn, and I'm drawing cards the whole time from Reki. Mm-hmm. People, people didn't like playing against that in casual, so then I was like, okay, I should only play it for more competitive games. I know that Paradox Engine is really strong in this deck, so I went and bought a Paradox Engine, and then I was like, oh, wait, she can actually uh, do some pretty insane stuff with Paradox Engine. So I got yes. DDH, started playing Paradox this day, and then a month later, Paradox Engine got banned. Uh, then in 2020, um, I was wanting to rebuild Sisse just because I really missed playing the card. And a friend of mine showed me a couple different Captain Sisse deck lists, including one that was exceptionally bad that required playing <laughs> like intro deck planeswalkers and the chain oh, veil gosh. and Surak the Hunt Collar. And the whole combo was that you would have to use like Gaia's Cradle and creatures that tapped for like three mana in order to create this tutor chain to untap Sisse and untap your Gaia's Cradle to produce enough mana. Find new planeswalkers over and over again until eventually you find the Chain Veil, play the Chain Veil, activate it, get another activation of all of your planeswalkers. Do it more and more, and then you find Karn the Great Creator, use his 
uptick to turn the chain veil into a creature and find Surak the Hunt Caller off of Captain Sisse and use his formidable trigger to give it haste. So you'd have to pass through combat in order to perform your whole combo across three different steps. And then in your second main phase, you finally would be able to activate Chain Veil again, untap, and then you can get infinite Chain Veil activations and then kill the table with uh, Ugin the Spirit Dragon. It was a bad deck. <laughs> but I that loved it, sounds... so I bought the cards to put it together. Oh my goodness. And then, like, I was maybe, like, six or seven cards short of building that deck, and then Dr. Despair came out with his Sisse Monster Friend deck, which was the mm-hmm. first deck to use Emil the Blessed in combination with Village Bellringer and Vivian Monster's Advocate to assemble the whole combo. Right. And then from there, I picked up the build. I added Ashaya because Ashaya is also an infinite mana legendary creature that you can tutor for. Right. And started playing more and more games. Uh, I slowly improved and improved upon the deck. I've played, I think, like 1,800 games with the deck now. Um, wow. It's it's a lot. But I, I think I'm very much a specialist of that one deck, even though I play other CEDH decks. Like, I have not taken anything but Captain Sisse to a major tournament. Mm-hmm. So when you are sitting down at a table, uh, let's say next to the big event, I believe is Oktoberfest. I think, mm-hmm. uh, say we're, we're at Oktoberfest, we're sitting down. Um, what is it that you as the pilot of this deck are thinking in this situation? Um, I'm a person who does a lot of research on whatever it is I could be playing against. Um, mm-hmm. I often say that Captain Sisse is a deck that rewards mastery, not just of the deck itself, but also of the format in general. It requires mm-hmm. you knowing a lot about the format in order to understand what stacks pieces you should tutor for when, when it's safe to push for a combo, or when you should try to race because you're just not in a position to try and slow down the table. Um, So depending upon what the pod composition is, I might be going for early stacks pieces to stop some of the main win conditions at the table. I might be trying to pursue my own fast combo on turn three or turn four, Mm -hmm. or I might just be trying to leverage my position at the table to, and the fact that people don't know the deck super well in order to bait some forms of interaction for other players. Like somebody goes for an underworld breach and they're like, Ooh, we got to do something about this. And then I'm like, all right, guys, go ahead and like use all of your interaction. I'm in green white. What do you expect me to do? (laughs) And then the underworld breach player fights through all of the interaction. And I'm like, all right. So in response to you, uh, casting your lion's eye diamond again from your graveyard, I'm going to activate Sisse. Here's this Besaju who endures and I'm going to, discard it to destroy your underworld breach and then that is, everyone's gets their interaction on my on my next turn i win the game that is so great that you can tutor besaju with that so i disgusting. didn't even think about that that's really disgusting yep so i guess part of what i would guess or ask then is as somebody who 
you know, is brewing this deck. Uh, it's an older strategy. Mm-hmm. When if you were to help somebody who's maybe newer to CEDH, just started playing in the last like what year or two, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, how to what to go back and look at because I mean there are some people who might not know about these older decks, right? Like what what is it that what would you say is like the best way of going back and looking at these older builds and trying to learn lessons from them? That's like how would you go about doing that? So the first thing that you mentioned is like accessibility. If they don't know about these older strategies, um, a good resource to be able to find some of those older school decks that maybe haven't been upkept for a while uh, is the outdated tab on the CEDH decklist database. The outdated decks there, a lot of them still have legs to stand on. Mm-hmm. But we just don't see people playing them or the primer authors regularly upkeeping the deck. Right. So, like, a good example of this is something like Narameha. Narameha was removed from the database because the author of the deck list didn't want to continue updating the deck. So, Narameha got moved to the outdated section. But mm-hmm. she still has her fairly decent A plus B for infinite mana and or infinite enters the battlefield triggers for some creature that you have. Right. Also, things like Nin the Pain Artist um, still has Icer Conceptor and Dramatic Reversal to generate infinite mana and then activate it to draw your deck. Also, it's gotten new updates with things like Dockside Extortionist combos through... Uh, what is it? Lordrakis, I think, is the card. Yep. So that's another way that you can generate infinite mana, or Dockside and Baron Master Wizard can also generate infinite mana and then use Nin to draw your deck and win the game. Mm-hmm. But also, Nin has a very nice uh, upside of just being a loaded gun on the table to any Thassa's Oracle deck, where if they try to go for Thassa's Oracle, then you're like, all right, I'm going to pay three mana, activate Nin, deal one damage to your Thassa's Oracle, force you to draw one card. Mm-hmm. You be- you better hope that you're not the first Thassa's Oracle player to go for it, because whoever that player is is going to bite a pretty big bullet. Um, No, it's really interesting, like, the whole phenomena of these, like, lower-colored decks. I mean, from your perspective also, like, you know, a deck like... Magda even, which is a newer deck. Uh you know. Is that a one-off thing, or do you think that that's like a sustainable thing? Because I I, I feel like my thought on it is, you know, once people become aware of the thing that does the thing, they start to play around it. Uh and I think a you know, Magda's a great example of that is you know, you get you see it in the MLC, right? Everybody, every time Ian dropped a Magda, they were immediately like, hey, got to deal with that. And that's one of those things that I, I wonder is in the long term, do some of these decks, will they be able to 
to thrive in those environments or do you think it just it doesn't matter because everybody just plays you know whatever anyway and uh whatever happens happens yeah well i think that uh magda is a really good example of this because uh koibito who happens to actually be a local friend of mine won marchesa 2022 with magda Mm -hmm. and magda very much has the advantage of if you don't stop the deck it's just gonna do what it does mm-hmm. and what it does is it wins games and it can win games instant speed on top of somebody right but there are other decks that people are more familiar with that have the same kind of advantage things like Krok sakashima or winota where if you don't respect the deck or you don't deal with the commanders in some way they will often just run over a table mm-hmm. so i think that even with some of these like older cult some of these older decks maybe two color decks or one color decks that a lot of people have just kind of written off they still can have the same type of advantage of if you don't respect them they will run you over Mm -hmm. that's probably how the the teferi player in the cash cards unlimited event did so well because a lot of people didn't respect the deck and when you don't respect the deck and the pilot knows what to do in basically every scenario they have a very significant advantage that the pod does not realize. Yeah, I would. Uh, I, I would agree with that for sure. Uh, I think it's one of those things like similar to I've, I've, I think I've told the story before, but with Lavinia, where. People just kind of. Forget that it does things. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I've been in games where. People playing Turbo Nas, they're going after me. I'm going like second or third, and they will keep one or no land hands. And, you know, Lavinia has one card trick, and that's mm-hmm. play Lavinia on turn one. It does one thing, uh, <laughs> figures the rest out as we go, but it does that. Uh, and it's interesting because I, I, I've been able to just get really streaky with the deck in certain instances because people will play against it, not really know what's going on. And then uh, maybe not mulligan correctly. Right. Uh, Maybe interact in a way that, no, you can't, your force of wills turned off right now, or your fierce is turned off or your pack or what have you. And, uh, Oh, my lion, my lion's eye diamond doesn't, it's countered immediately. Um, it, it's one of those things that I think is the meta is a lot more diverse and a lot more open than I think people would like to think it is. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we hear a lot about, you know, it's, it's Cody, it's Najila, it's, you know, Park and Takashima, it's Tim Nakrom, it's Thrasius Tim, all these things. And, while that is true, those things do make up a large portion of them. I mean, how many? I mean, you, you, you've played in tournaments a lot. Mm-hmm. Those aren't the entire field. There are some wild commanders out there floating around. You know what I mean? Yep. Like you. This is one of the things that I think that tournament EDH is the, as we have more of it is going to bring to the forefront which is the meta is not defined 
And because of the way the format is kind of designed, it incentivizes you to play to your strengths rather than play, you know, the best deck. This is actually, this is, this is interesting. I, so I just finished writing the Jeskai Stoneblade primer yesterday. And in that I discussed a little bit about how the deck is, this might not be the best version of this list. However, it is what I have tooled it to play well to myself. And I have tooled it to play well, and I've tried to make it as accessible to as many people and give the readers of the primer the tools to be able to tool it to themselves. Um, something that I'm working on doing is building like Timnacrom, but tooling it towards my game, my play style. And yep. I think that is like, I think we could actually get into a more interesting conversation on that note, honestly. Of just the like when you're building a deck, because I mean you play other decks too, right? Like you yeah. I, I think I played you had you play against like Timna uh Timna Sakashima Doomsday, uh something like that. Um I think that was you uh when we were playing. Uh, yeah, it, it was Timna Sakashima mid-range consult. There's actually okay. no Doomsday, there's no Pure into the Abyss, no Bull Assisted Adult, anything like that. Yeah. Just trying to maximize like drawing five to seven cards with two copies of Timna and effectively trade one for one with my opponent's resources through counter spells or just outvalue them with raw card advantage, stuff like that. That that's, that's kind of what just guy Stoneblade is. We were playing, we were playing the other day on, uh, on my private server and, uh, Dan, one of our friends was playing Razakets, I believe. And, it was just like me, Pongo, Sage, and Dan. And I had just, you know, I did the thing. I play a Skull Clamp turn one. I play an Arden turn one and I clamp a dork and uh, I draw two cards and then I pass the turn and then I do it again the next turn and then I play Krom and then gets to around turn 10 or turn, excuse me, turn eight uh, okay. when the game's starting to wrap up. And Dan, because I was playing on, on uh, Boxfield, so uh, you could see my library count. And Dan just goes, holy cow, you have 53 cards left in your deck. You've seen more cards than literally any of us. Mm-hmm. And I'm just like, yeah, this card, this deck sees an absurd amount of cards. It's if, if its engines get online, you are not going to outpace it. Like it is going to be able to deal with pretty much everything. Yep. Uh, and it's really wild. And I think that's something that, you know, if you pl- have a similar play style to me or to you, uh, you're going to play in a way where, you know, you're really looking to just develop engines. You're looking to yep. develop these card value uh, resources and turboing isn't necessarily the correct thing to do. I, I, there was a uh, person in our local meta who played Tim Necrom and I've played against her a zillion times and she was playing blue farm and she was asking me for advice on the deck. And I said, okay, well, do you want advice on how to play blue farm better? Or do you want advice on how to 
make this a deck better for you. And she was like, well, I want it to be better for me. Obviously, that's the correct answer, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so what I, we went through the deck. We pulled everything out. We kind of sorted everything into different piles and stuff. And I said, okay, here is my observation on this. You have a lot of stuff that is, you know, you're told that we need to be playing this thing or this thing or this thing. I'm like, your deck has a lot of really important hate bears. Mm-hmm. You probably don't want to play calling ritual because you care about your creatures. Yep. Like as good as, as good as it is, you care about your creatures. So it's probably not in your best interest to play that. card. Yep. Um, you know, loyal apprentice. Sure. It's, you know, it generates some cards with Timna, those sorts of things, but is that to your play style or, you know, you like to be able to interact with the table. You like to be able to do this. Um, tool things to the way that you play has been my approach. The Omen Pool Primer is not the Lavinia deck that I play. Uh, <laughs> that is the Lavinia deck that Phoenix and I get together and are just like, yeah, this is like the best that I would recommend somebody who's new to the deck trying it out for the first time like a good starting point but like that's not what i play when i play it like i play it a very different way and it's interesting to me because i don't think that is a conversation that gets had enough is how do we make these decks and in play to our our strengths and so i guess something i would ask you jonas is for you as a player you know, I played against you a handful of times for you as a player, your strengths. How, how have you identified what your strengths are? And then how have you built decks to support that? If that makes sense. Yeah. So a uh, funny story. I actually learned this from another friend of mine. Uh, his name is Riley or he goes by Riley player of decks. He got top 16 in March. Asa 2022. Mm-hmm. Um, and he and I had this great conversation about playing to your strengths and he identified one of his best strengths as I'm a player who's really good at making the right decision. So I build blue farm the way to like have more interactive spells, give more flexibility, things that like he has a braid in the deck, which Normally, you're like, okay, well, why would you play your braid when you can just play this bounce spell? And he goes, well, I like being able to permanently remove, like, a Timna or a Najila until they recast it, or I get to destroy an artifact. That flexibility is something that's important to me. Mm-hmm. And that is something that he identified as one of his strengths. And I think on some level, I have a similar kind of strength in that because I research the format so much, because I practice so much on a single deck i'm very good at making the correct decision with that deck in any circumstance so in order to maximize that i should play a deck that gives me the most number of options for something where sisay highlights this very well where if i'm playing in a pod and i go okay well i can stop this player and i can stop this player but i can't stop this player but i also am two turns away from progressing my own combo, mm-hmm. then maybe it's 
rather than trying to race to that combo, I should go for the more conservative play and make it so it's just me versus one other person. Mm-hmm. And then that person likely has their combo in one turn, whereas I have mine in two turns. So I can expect that the table's interaction is going to be pointed at that player instead of my way. Yeah. So I also very much like layered combo decks, like you had mentioned earlier. And uh, I very much like mid-range decks because I like the flexibility of being able to play either the fast combo role or the interactive or more stacky role, depending upon what the pod demands. Yeah, it's... It's interesting that that I would I would agree with your analysis on yourself. I I think for me it's I like I like to have answers, and I like to I like to have things that are threats but don't bring immediate attention to themselves as existential got to deal with this right now threats um uh one of the things i think is a really good example of that is in Stoneblade, where you know you land a sword of fire and ice and you put it on your arden at first and people are just like i mean all right yeah that's fine i guess and that's not great but you know but you got it and people don't realize that's a that does a lot of work um <laughs> yeah you hit somebody kill somebody's creature and also draw a card then you're effectively trading two cards for zero because yep. you're not actually spending any cards to do it yeah you're just removing something and drawing a card for I, free. I, I promise i'm not gonna just shill arden this whole time but <laughs> um it, it's honestly one of in my opinion the most underexplored commanders in cedh right now because it's just like equipment can be extremely powerful and arden's ability to make the equip cost which is usually the biggest hurdle irrelevant is first of all a huge deal but also being able to use your equipment as a way of dealing with opponents resources you can also steal opponents resources you know you can put a helm of the host on your opponent's dock side if you need more mana uh which Ew. is i did not realize that yeah like it, it, it's just like you know your opponent has a crom and you're like well i don't have a crom but i do have a helm of the host and i would like to have a crom please so i'm going to equip, equip this helm of the host to your crom uh and the fun th- Thing about helm of the host is it is a triggered ability that goes onto the stack regardless of whether or not it is equipped yep so when and it checks on resolution so you put that on the bottom of the stack you put arden's trigger on the top of the stack you move it oh man it's on a crom now i guess i have a crom oh yep. and this has haste cool um so it, it it's actually it's really cool the types of interactions that you can get to have that people I think don't really see. And it's, you know, I've seen some people have takes where it's like, you know, mid range isn't as effective as we would like to think that it is, but I actually, Mm -hmm. you know, I, I don't know how much I agree with that because I keep seeing mid range be successful over and over and over again. And I see turbo 
be fine. Mm-hmm. Like, like I, this is not me tearing, like shitting on or saying that turbo Nasdaqs are bad. I don't think that they are bad, but I think everybody knows exactly what to do against them. Yeah. And because of that, you're going to run into this thing of people are going to assume, like, I think Pun City was a really good example of this. Everybody was kind of going into Pun City expecting it to be this, like, heavy turbo mode. Yep. And so people were tooling their decks with that expectation. But then they get there, and because everybody was tooling their decks with that expectation, it ended up being, like, the super grindy meta. And so it's this really hilarious dichotomy of how I don't think I I just don't think that these you know what fuck it I'll say it I don't think decks that are on turbo strategies are well positioned overall I think they are well positioned when they are going first or in early turns Mm -hmm. uh the reality of it is, is that most games of CEDH end around turn six, not turn three. And yeah. most of your opponents are going to be able to stop your win attempts before turn three. And so. Now, there's obviously outliers. Sometimes Goto just gets treasonous ogre on turn one and you're like, Neat. you know what? I can't do anything about that. Does anybody have force of will in hand? Nope. Cool. I guess we're dead. Uh, it just or somebody looks, does, and then they pay three more life to cast their red elemental blast. Yeah. Or well, it's you got to like, counter the treasonous ogre, right? So it's like mm-hmm. you're like, all right. Well, if you don't have it here, then that, that that's it. That's the game. Um, and, and and sometimes you will get that. Like that's the thing is, I do think turbo decks can get those early wins and can do that. But over the course of a bunch of games and a lot of tournaments where people are playing a wide variety of decks uh, and people are not always playing optimally because the reality is, is that in a multiplayer setting, people are influenced by the, your opponents. Uh, I don't think that turbo is the strategy that I would want to take to a tournament. I would want to play a deck that is and this is what I do want to play is I want to play a deck that can win the game. Uh, it can present a turn three, but it's perfectly OK. Just hanging back. Taking things as they come going with the flow, you know, real Bob Dylan like uh, CEDH deck. Uh, <laughs> and, you know, that's me just kind of ranting. But, you know, it, what what's your perspective on all of that? Like where 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 do you see all of this? So uh there there are a couple things that I want to talk about um in relation to the points that you just made. Um first of all, that you should be playing a deck that fits your playstyle, not the deck that is just the best thing to do. Mm-hmm. Because like you had mentioned, you could play this fast combo strategy, like you had mentioned with your friend who was playing Blue Farm earlier, where you could play this fast combo strategy, but if that's not your play style, then why are you playing something that doesn't play to your strengths? Right. So instead, you build it more stru- structured around the hate bears, or 
you add things like a braid to your blue farm deck because you like having the flexibility of options. Right. Um, I think it's more important that players play things that they themselves know they can play well because even like tier two or tier three decks or things like Teferi, which we haven't seen in like three years, uh, shows up and wins a Black Lotus because the player was very experienced playing Teferi. And I think playing the things that you know you can do well with is more important than playing the best cards or playing the strategy that everyone tells you to play. And when evaluating like what things you should play, a lot of people consider things like Thrasios and Timna or Timna and Krom or Winota as like these are things that give you resources or give you card advantage. Right. But one of the things I talk about in the learn to play competitive EDH class that I taught uh, in the very first lesson, it was how to identify the strengths of a commander. And I separated it into four different categories. First is that it's a form of card advantage. It gives you something that you didn't have before. The second being that it's a combo piece. It's either an outlet for a combo like Thrasius with infinite mana, or it's a part of a combo itself like Gitrog Monster. Right. The third one is it's a stacks piece because you have things like Lavinia or Yasharn that are powerful stacks pieces in the command zone, and they help lend their strengths to your whole strategy. But then the fourth category that I don't often see a lot of people talking about um, is something that I call being an enabler. And enablers are things that uniquely enhance the quality of cards in your deck to bring them up to CDH competitive level. Mm -hmm. A really good example of this is like Rograk for Turbo Adnaz decks. Mm -hmm. Rograk improves the quality of things like Springleaf Drum or Culling the Weak or Deflecting Slot, Fierce Guardianship, Diabolic Intent, things like that. They all become better cards because, you know, I will have access to this from turn one through my Zero Manic Manor. Right. Another example is Arden, which we have talked oh so extensively about. Where we haven't even scratched the surface. <laughs> I know. There's a, there's a lot to unpack there. But Arden is a very strong enabler for the archetype by improving the quality of cards in your deck, like improving the quality of the equipment that you play. Um, also, things like being able to skull clamp your opponent's cards or being able to copy somebody else's thing with a helmet. Which, 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 by the way, not to interrupt you, but if you have never had the opportunity, to sculpt clamp an opponent's noble hierarchy, for instance, and draw the two cards from destroying this creature that you did for basically nothing. It is a sensation that I can't really give you any discernible like description of other than you have to do it because it feels great. Uh, it also makes stuff like Forbidden Orchard great because you're like, this just says tap, add one mana of any color, draw two cards after combat, uh, like, or at combat. So, but anyway, back to your point. So, uh, 
funny enough, I actually saw somebody uh, use Arden and a skull clamp to kill a notion thief that they played, hoping yep. it would stop the Arden from running away with the game. And they were like, nope, we, nope. we were uh, we were talking about that the other day. Uh, Dan was talking about he was like, well, if I had this notion thief, it would have slowed you down. I was like, isn't that like a four one? He's like, yeah. And I was like, I had skull clamp out. It didn't matter. Like, oh, yeah, yeah. I just kill your notion <laughs> thief and draw the cards anyway. Yeah, I'm like, I'll just kill your notion thief and draw the two cards and then cool you spent four mana thank you <laughs> but back to the point about cards being enablers like arden is another example of an enabler commander uh things like kamal heart of krosa enables stack strategies by actually providing enough damage in the command zone to actually pressure people's life totals mm -hmm. um very similarly there's other things that you can do with enablers like Kedis Emberclaw familiar with the Malcolm and Kedis Polyhorn decks. As Kedis increases the quality of cards in your deck, namely Malcolm, by allowing Malcolm to make three treasures instead of just one. Right. So when we look at some of these commanders that have been doing really well in some of these events, like Urza, Teferi, um, I know there was an Animar deck that made a top 16. There was a Brago deck that made top 16. Mm -hmm. um, if we look at a lot of these decks and evaluate them through that kind of framework, we see, okay, so Urza and Teferi are both forms of card advantage. They're both combo pieces as well. So they check out two of the four boxes. And that's, that's pretty good. Right. We also look at things like Animar, who is a combo piece with Ancient Statue, and is also a bit of an enabler by discounting the cost of some very impactful spells that you can play. Namely, um, I think the Cash Cards Unlimited player was playing five Eldrazi in his deck. And it turns out that when you're just playing this like value playing with Animar and maybe the game is like going long or it's a little stacksy, you just put this Kozilek into play and draw four cards for yeah. basically free. That's pretty that's pretty strong. It was honestly one of the most like wild decklists I've ever seen. Like it, oh, yeah. it was, it was truly, it, this is no shade at that guy. It was just mm -hmm. like, honestly, just like a shocking deck to look at because you're just not used to seeing things like that. Yeah. It's a little baffling, right? Yeah, absolutely. Um, but also something that we notice in outside of just the commanders that have been performing well in some of these events. Some of the decisions for what they play in their main deck in the 99 um, start to show some very unconventional ways of thinking about competitive EDH. And these are things that we often associate with things that are like more casual. These are some things that you'd hear on the command zone for how to improve your deck, like include extra turn spells, include this number of ramp cards, this number of interaction cards. And these kind of templates where you have like your capture of Jing Zhao, your time warp, your expropriate in the Teferi deck that ended up basically winning him the game. Yeah, that was one of the cards that I was like, hmm. Yep. I mean, OK, but hmm. Like it's it's a little, it's a little sus. Yeah, it's, it's a little <laughs> sus. But at the end of the day, that that thing did end up winning him the game. Is it? Yeah. Drew him an extra card, but technically actually drew him four cards because he also got to take permanence from every other player and he got multiple colors of things 
in order to activate his chromatic orrery to draw three cards instead of just one because he had four colors among permanents he controlled. Mm -hmm. So when we look at some of these things that are like a little bit more unconventional, but oftentimes the casual community is like extra turn spells are really, really strong. Expropriate is really, really strong. Um, we see that maybe things aren't as cut and dry as we think they are in terms of what defines a competitive power level. And maybe there are some things like we've seen Tygum turns or Kest turns mm -hmm. from forever ago that would play these extra turn spells and try to establish loops of infinite turns. Maybe you don't need infinite turns to be able to win the game. Maybe you just need one or two extra turns to be able to win the game. Right. Yeah, it's very interesting to like consider all of those different angles to it. I'm interested to see exactly how things develop because you know, we kind of have these two competing ways of building like decks going on right now. And I'm interested to see exactly where things end up. Like, I don't think that, uh, like, they are, like, foes necessarily. I think there's just, like, different perspectives on how to do things. And mm -hmm. for what it's worth, I think that there are a lot of perspectives. And I think that they are also not entirely wrong. Like, I think that. Like, I think that the people who are like, you should be playing turbo, you should be playing this and this and this, like, they aren't incorrect, right? Yeah. Uh, and they, there is truth there that there, there's, those strategies are quite good. But I think there's more nuance to the conversation overall. And I think kind of what we're talking about is almost the most helpful, especially for, more veteran players who are trying to, you know, we've been playing for, you know, whatever, however many amount of years, and I haven't really figured out what my deck is yet. I'm trying to find something. I'm trying to play better and improve. And I think playing to your strengths is a really good way of, because when you first start out in CDH, you don't know what your strengths are, right? Mm -hmm. Like you don't know, what you do really well at a four player table. Um, yep. And I think that is just something that comes with time and fine. Uh, but anyhow, this was an interesting conversation. Uh, I'm really glad we got to uh, sit down and have this chat. I know that we've been trying to do this for a while. I, we wanted to do this all the way back in like April or something, but with the MLC and all that going down, it just time. Uh, <laughs> well, we also definitely changed topics too. where originally we were talking about like, how do you handle bands from like yeah. rebuilding captain Sisse without paradox engine? But that's not a topic that like really does super well because we've only had two bands in the past few years that have really affected competitive EDH being yeah. Paradox Engine ban and the Flash ban. And the Flash ban right. was in 2020, I think. Yeah. So and everybody well, I mean there was the whole breacher ban. That oh, did true. that did impact things. Um I forgot about the whole breacher. I forgot about but it I because think it like, bad. 
Yeah, well, and it was one of those things where I I thought it was a good decision for the format because I thought we were entering into a very uh, unhealthy format uh, that was because it was all it was just a parasitic format, I think. And. uh, But that's a whole other conversation about, you know, my tirades against hull breach or what is it hull breaker no hull breacher yep there's too many holes yeah because there's hull breacher hull breaker horror every single time i try to type out hull breaker horror it auto corrects to hull breacher for like the first month or so yeah absolutely Good grief. All right, Jonas. So if people want to follow you online, they want to keep up with what the choir boy is doing. Uh, how can they do that? Uh, well, first of all, you can subscribe to my YouTube channel, uh, my YouTube channel, choir boy, 2020. Uh, I post videos there semi-regularly. I just posted a video yesterday. Um, you can also find me on Discord at choirboy2020 hash 6309. Uh, you can also find me on Facebook at Jonas Williams, or uh, if you join the CEDH Competitive Commander Facebook group, um, I'm a moderator there, and I regularly interact with the community members there. Appreciate you coming on. Uh, I know that we kind of like... it. Recording with me is following the stream of consciousness that is Callahan. <laughs> so, yeah. you know, we'll come in with like an idea and then we'll end up wherever the hell we end up. Uh, <laughs> I really appreciate you coming on. Uh, it was a good time uh, talking with you. Always a pleasure. And uh, hopefully I'll get to see you soon, buddy. I uh, haven't seen you since March. So hopefully we'll get to change that up. Well, that about wraps things up for us here on this week's episode of The Mind Sculptors. Thank you so much for tuning in. I also want to thank our top tier patrons, Justin, Adam Hamden, David Sneevely, Dionichis, Jason Bialik, Matt Boehner, and Senior Coupon. Thank you to everybody who supports us, and thank you again for joining us. And from all of us here at The Mind Sculptors, I'm Callahan, and we'll see you next time.